You know, people are going to make mistakes and they need to feel that they can make mistakes and, and it's not going to cost them their career. We can move forward from mistakes. We can look at it as a team and say, okay, you know, how do we make sure we don't make that mistake again? And what, what additional support do we need to give to our team members to do that? And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, welcome back to Scaling Clean, the podcast that gathers company building and management tips from the most accomplished leaders in clean tech. Today, our guest fits that build to a T, and he's someone I've wanted on the show since we launched. LightSource BP CEO Kevin Smith is one of the few people in clean tech who's led two major solar companies. But what makes Kevin such a great interview is the depth of his background, fossil fuels and renewables, Europe and the US, two different types of solar. And throughout it all, he's proven to be an impressive company builder who draws consistent praise from the people who work for him. And I want to learn more about how he does it. Kevin, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Great. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Start with your background. How would you summarize your career as a corporate leader? Um, Well, I can provide maybe a 20-second summary. Uh, You know, I've got an engineering degree from Purdue and a a master's in business from University of Chicago and, and really spent... 40 years, it's hard to say sometimes, 40 years in the energy industry, um, right out of college, um, worked on, you know, conventional fossil fuel projects, um, nuclear design, you know, really the first half of my career was uh, with regards, you know, with pre-renewables, and I was in leadership positions in in those companies as well, Um, some C-level positions, um, moved into renewables in really started in, t- in 2004 and then moved heavy into solar in 2008. Um, and so have a kind of a full range of, of uh, you know, regions, as you, as you mentioned, I've built projects in 12 or 15 different countries, you know, both fossil fuel and, and renewables. Um, and I think that gives me a really a good basis to understand where projects work and where they don't work um, and, for the most part, I would consider myself really a developer as I've been on the development side of the business for, you know, probably, you know, well over 50% of my career has been on the development side. So developing new projects, finding areas where projects work, you know, power contracts, permitting activities, all those kinds of things. So tell me about the first time you were somebody's boss. What mistakes do you recall making and how have you changed your leadership style over the years? Um, well, I, I would say I'm still making mistakes. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the most difficult part that I see is there's a whole lot of issues that take a, a balanced approach. Um, and I think that finding that right spot, that balanced approach is different in different organizations and it's different with, with different people. So it's, you know, it's providing direction 
um, without without you know over management or without micromanagement. So it's it's providing a balance between you know setting performance targets, but not not being too invasive into their personal lives or their their work life balance. So I think the whole the whole development of a management style and leadership style is is trying to balance those a lot of different aspects of the individuals that you're dealing with and with the organizations and the organization needs. And like I said, it's a bit of trial and error. You know, it's trial and error with different companies and it's trial and error with different individuals on how, you know, what works best for them. Do they need a lot of direction or do they do a whole lot better? Um, you know, if you're there as an advisor for them to kind of approach. Um, so I, I think that's probably one of the, one of the biggest, um, changes in my style is I'll say at least recognizing that there's a, you know, there's some trial and error and some balance that, that really isn't, isn't clear cut that you need to maintain in, in organizations and in individuals. Let me ask a follow-up question. You use the term overmanage. That term's unique to you, but the concept I've heard from many others. Is there a set of indicators or th things that you notice that tell you you're getting to that ideal amount of management for a, for one employee, which surely will be different than another employee. It seems like that's a really hard thing to do as a company leader is to know how much management somebody needs. So how do you size up somebody's need for management? Well, I, as you rightly point out, it's a, you know, it's a difficult uh, mix and it's a difficult, you know, activity to try and find exactly what the right mix is for for those management so that management support uh, you know as you as you are dealing with new employees and and uh, you know or existing employees that have moved over into your into your domain um, it's like I said in the in, in, when we discussed the, the last concept it's a little, little bit of trial and error so you need to start out you know um, fairly broad um, you know I, I like to to, I'll say, prove myself to the employee first so that the employee then recognizes the value that I can add. And I like to gauge some of my management based on their request for management or their request for support in, in various um, you know, activities. So do they need support in a negotiation? Do they need support in managing another employee? You know, is there a difficult um, activity that they're dealing with that they could use some advice on or somebody sitting um, with them shoulder to shoulder. So, and what that, it creates a bit of a slower process to, to, to I'll say gaining, you know, confidence and trust in, in the employee, but it, but it, you know, it, it protects you from, um, you know, kind of rushing in too heavy. And then all of a sudden you've alienated that person. And now you're kind of trying to recover as opposed to kind of a gradual build of, of trust and, and, uh, and, you know, supervision and, and advisory services and those kinds of things. Who are your most important mentors and what did you learn from them? You know, <laughs> interestingly enough, I would probably say, I don't think I grew up in a in kind of a mentorship environment. You know, when I look back, you know, early in my career and, you know, I'll say, you know, halfway through my career, I was advancing into, into VP level and, and C-level kind of positions. And, you know, I think back on some of the, you know, people that I dealt with, you know, brilliant, some brilliant people. Um, 
but I'm not sure that mentorship was kind of a, you know, a, a buzzword, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, maybe it was, but it wasn't, maybe it wasn't instituted very successfully. So it was a little bit, you know, it was a little bit survival of the fittest um, and which isn't, which isn't, which isn't a good way for things to roll because you get a, you end up getting people get left behind that have a lot of value that they can add. So, so I didn't, I don't know if I would point to any particular uh, people in my past that I would say were, were good mentors for, for, for myself. Um, it was a little bit more, like I said, kind of survival of the fittest. You started in traditional power generation and then you moved into renewables. What drew you to renewables? Well, I, I spent my entire career in, in energy and energy markets have, have transitioned over the years. Um, you know, environmental aspects have become a critical part of it. You know, the, the reality that climate change is, is, is here and it's, and it's affecting how we, things we do every day and, and weather patterns and, you know, economics and all those kinds of things. So, so I think that realization that there was, um, you know, better options, um, you know, in the, in the early 2000s and 2004, I headed up um, the development activities for a company called Invenergy, which at the time was, was pretty much a startup, you know, kind of less than 10 people. Uh, now they're kind of well over a thousand. Um, and, we were doing conventional natural gas fired projects and it was just the early stages of the wind business. Um, you know, I think we did, you know, 20 or 30 megawatts the first year. And then three years later, we were doing, you know, a billion dollars a year in wind projects. Um, and so, you know, having that, that uh, experience on, on developing both, you know, say natural gas projects at the time and, and renewable energy projects, it was pretty clear to me that, that, that I wanted to be on the, I'll say the right side of history, which is the, the growth in the re renewable energy um, a part of the business. So, so, you know, wind moving into solar um, and really make an effect on, on how our power, gen power generation mix, you know, is implemented in the U.S. and, and internationally. Uh, and so I think, you know, recognizing that there was better choices uh, and that those better choices, you know, would result in, you know, really a better environment and, and better long-term sustainability for, for the U.S. and the world really, you know, was the lock for me. Is running a renewable energy company different than running a company in a more mature sector? And if so, how? You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of ways. There's a lot of similarities. I think I think from a management standpoint, um, you know, a few of the things I've developed over the over the years is is individual performance isn't necessarily as important as as team dynamics and as trust among the team members. So you can have really high individual performances, but you know that may or may not result in an overall better. Um, uh, result for the company. So it's, it's developing that trust between, um, you know, staff and myself and between the staff members and themselves so that you've got a better team environment. I think that's universal across organizations. Um, I think, you know, uh, diversity issues have, have, have really, you know, emerged as a, as a great aspect of, of, of organizations. Um, you know, provides, you know, diversity in opinions and different backgrounds and helps in problem solving, 
those kinds of activities. So that's kind of a universal. I think if you look at renewable energy, um, you know, as a as a technology business, um, then you see it having things that are you know more driven, you know, by what you see in the tech sector, which is, you know, very quickly moving markets, um, changes in markets, uh, changes in technology, improving technologies. The technology that worked five years ago doesn't work today. Um, whereas, you know, when I was doing conventional energy projects, you know, on the nuclear or the natural gas side or even coal, you know, those technologies changed very, very slow. You know, over a decade, you'd see a mm. you know, 1% increase in, in steam turbine uh, efficiencies. Whereas on the renewable side, you know, you see more you know, lot lot quicker changes in technology. So, so the renewable side is more of a tech business um, than 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 conventional energy projects. So, I think you've got to deal with those those uh, types of activities. You know, fast moving, changing markets, new technologies. So, you've got to you know really be able to adapt as an organization and as individuals to look at the next best thing in, in that particular sector, or you're going to get left behind. At the risk of building in an overstatement to this follow-up question, let's assume that you, tomorrow you meet your long lost twin brother. You never knew you had. He is running an oil and gas company that's same size as the company you run. Given what you just said, it's so you confer notes, what it's like in a, in a day in a life of a CEO. It sounds to me like your twin sibling would say, I have to spend more of my time on executing how, what we know how to do well in a mature business. And you would have more of your time having to deal with strategic challenges in a more dynamic sector. Do you think that's true? Um, yeah, I would think that's true. Um, you know, certainly there's there's lots of changes in the oil and gas sector, but mostly as a result of the of the rise of renewables. So, so you see you see a lot of you know groups within the within the oil and gas sector that are making changes, responding to the the markets that have been you know that are now demanding cleaner technologies. So, so the fact that renewables, you know, solar and wind have have become in a lot of markets, the most cost competitive um, energy supply is forcing what was a very relatively staid, um, mature market. It's causing them to have to react as well. So, you know, so some of the aspects that that we see in in renewables, which is fast changing markets and and technology, you know, the oil and gas side are are going to have to look at that as well. And a lot of them are are now investing in in renewable energy technology. So in LightSource BP, where I'm CEO now, um, you know, our 50% strategic partner is BP. And BP's looking at all kinds of different technologies, not only just solar with LightSource mm. BP, but you know, EV charging and green hydrogen and all kinds of new markets that, you know, 20 years ago, it was how do they get the most out of out of their their drilling programs and and upstream and downstream uh, production activities. Now it's more like you know what's what technologies are we going to see in the next five to fifteen years that are going to push oil and gas you know into into a, you know a lesser part of the energy chain. You quit your job. You become a guest lecturer at University of Chicago's business school. 
tomorrow you're going to give a lecture called the role of the effective CEO. What would you tell your students is the role of the effective CEO? Um, well, we, I touched on it a little bit already, but I think, you know, one of the, one of the big parts of the business that I try and create within an organization is a, is a, is a secure environment that, that kind of fosters new ideas um, and risk-taking. So, you know, you need to have that, you know, I talked about trust earlier, you know, you need to create a, a, a you know, a, an environment of trust, not only between myself and the employees, but also amongst the employees themselves so that people have each other's back. They understand that there's some challenges, you know, you get a, a, a hard draw on a project or a negotiation, you need support from your, from the rest of the team. You know, that, that old, old uh, style management where it was, you know, you know, let's have everybody compete against everybody and the, and the kind of the, let emerge, the winners and the losers will emerge. That doesn't really work very well. Um, you need to really create a team environment. Um, you need to create a secure environment, which, you know, we, I talk a lot about blame free environments where, you know, people are going to make mistakes and they need to feel that they can make mistakes and, and it's not going to cost them their career um, that, 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 you know, they can move, we can move forward from mistakes, we can look at it as a team and say, okay, you know, how do we make sure we don't make that mistake again? And what, what additional support do we need to give to our team members to do that? So I think it's a secure environment. It's a, it's a blame free environment. It's a, it's a trust. Um, it's a trust uh, uh, culture within the organization. Those are all really hard things to do. Um, and we're still, you know, uh, we're still trying to make sure that we're hitting hitting those those notes properly as we move forward. So it's a it's a really hard thing to do to create that kind of culture. As long as everybody recognizes that's the goal, then 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 it helps um, as we move forward. I think the other thing that the CEO the CEO role is is you know he needs to be perceived that he's you know I'll say a steward of the individual's career. So you know. The, the, the CEO and other senior members, they're making decisions on how to help people through their careers, you know, what promotions they get, you know, salary increases, what additional training they should get. And, and I think people need to, like I said, feel comfortable in that environment that, that their supervisor or their CEO is looking out for them and, and is a steward for their career so that you know, they, they, you know, have a certain amount of control themselves, but in, in other parts, they don't have as much control as they'd like. And they're depending on those that have kind of gone before them to kind of help pull them up. So. So what I hear you saying is the first thing you share with these University of Chicago MBA students is the CEO's most important focus is the culture that he or she creates among the employees who report up to him or her. That's exactly correct. Yeah. What What are like, what's number two and three, or I don't want to take you down a list of 20, but what would come in second place as the, as the most important thing for a CEO to be doing? Well, I, you know, the, the CEO, need, yeah, there's a certain decision-making part of his role as well, or her role, um, and, you know, what projects to go after, um, general uh, setting strategy and, and setting targets, um, setting individual targets for his his or her senior staff. Um, so you know there's a certainly a business side of it that that the CEO needs to have a, a, a you know strong level of understanding in the business 
Um, so I think, I think number one though, is really setting that culture, bringing in the right team. You know, the CEO is, is gonna bring in those senior leaders and or promote people in those senior leadership positions. So, you know, it's probably, you know, culture one, team two, you know, business acumen three, probably in that. In Interesting. That. One of the things you've talked with me about before we got on this call was the business case for diverse teams. I've seen you and I've heard of you advocating for this in private to your colleagues within the company. What's the business case for diverse teams? Not the moral case, but the business case. Well, uh, you know, diversity issues and, and having diverse teams. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you can even Google it and say, okay, you know, what's the value of having diverse teams? And it's, and it, and it, and it, you know, the, the right answers come up. I mean, you bring in a variety of people from different backgrounds and, and different education levels and, and uh, you know, different areas of society. And you end up having, you know, better problem solving, um, you know, better leadership activities, you know, um, more, more of a, a change environment that, that can be handled. So that, that diversity of staff provides diversity of opinions and provides, you know, more options, more innovation, more, you know, better problem solving. That's the business case, you know, setting aside, you know, you know, what's, what's good for society and good for mankind, you know, the business case is, as like I said, as, as you kind of, you know, can Google it, um, that the, you know, diversity provides that innovation and, and better problem solving. And certainly we're, we're experiencing that, you know, as we, as we walk through our kind of day-to-day -day activities. You've also introduced me to the concept of servant leadership. I think you used that term, but you've used other terms as well. <clears throat> Where did you learn this idea and what are the benefits you have seen in using it as an ethic? Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, it's probably, I mean, I don't know if I learned it or, or just lived it kind of over the last number of decades, you know, surviving in very competitive uh, markets as a leader, you know, it was, it, it, it didn't take me very long to figure out that in a lot of instances, and maybe in, in most instances, or in all instances, you know, as a leader, you need the staff more than they need you. And I think if people recognize that, that you know, as a leader, you're, you're looking at them to provide as much input into the, into the strategies, into the goals, into the, the success of my career as they are looking for me to help them provide um, you know, advice and, and uh, advancement so that they succeed in their, in their goals and their careers. So I think it's that concept that, that the leader really, you know, is, you know, is looking for, he needs to be successful if his team is successful. Um, and, and that, that, that activity that, you know, the leader really needs his staff more than the staff needs the leader. Leaders come and go. Okay. Um, and, you know, if I, if I'm not pulling my weight, you know, I'm, you know, typically if the company's not being successful, the leader is the first one to go. Um, they're not going to fire the whole team. They're going to they're going to bring in a new leader. So that that makes that leader really heavily dependent on his staff. And you can either disclose that to your staff that you know that that you know, my career is is really going to be going to rise and fall as the team rises and falls, or you try and hide that in you know a bluster of individual performance goals and 
and and pressure and 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 those kinds of activities and that doesn't really work very well for me um so i think that that view that the leader really is serving the the broader goals of the individuals career-wise you know um uh, advice um you know tempering balance between you know individual performance requirements and their own work-life balance those kinds of things become very kind of very critical <clears throat> very critical in, in, in building that culture of trust. Hiring, it's cited in almost every one of these conversations as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. What have you learned about hiring, particularly at the senior level? I think probably at the senior level, it, it requires probably more patience than people um, give it, okay? And that, and that, and there, that really is, is how you also help create diverse teams as well. You know, people have this urgency that they've got an opening, they need to fill a role, they, they get in a half a dozen resumes, they pick the best of the half a dozen and then they move on. And certainly in some circumstances, you don't have any choice. You've got to, you know, you need somebody in, in a role um, and you need to make a quick decision. But I think, I think having that bit of patience in the hiring activity to make sure that you're bringing in you know, people that fit the culture, that 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 fit the team dynamics, um, that are comfortable in a in an environment of trust within the organization. Um, you know, have dealt with you know uh, changing environments and fast moving businesses. But I think it's it's having a little bit of patience in the in the in the hiring process to make sure that you know the first person that crosses the you know your your threshold with the right resume isn't necessarily the, the person that may be a good fit for the, for the company or for the team. And I think that is also a, a bit of a lesson on, on, on hiring diverse teams as well. Um, and that's one of the things we talk about within our, our own company is that, you know, in order to bring in a diverse staff, you need to have that patience because you're gonna get some qualified people that walk in across, you know, across the door quickly are they the right fit? Does it fit our, our company goals? Does it fit our diversity requirements? Is there a better fit? Is there you know, somebody that, that um, you know, would be a better team member than another? Uh, and so don't, don't jump too quickly. Make sure you're making those, those team decisions with kind of a patient, uh, critical approach on what you really want culturally within the organization, not just you know, words on a resume and experience on a resume. In that hypothetical classroom at University of Chicago Business School, what's the guidance you would offer your students on firing people? Uh, that's a tough one because I'm pretty bad at firing people. So um, that's probably one of my big weaknesses. You know, I'm a, you know, second, second chance, third chance, fourth chance. And, and unfortunately, probably when I look at, at, at when I've been in those instances, um, you know, it, you know, it's, you know, once, once you have an employee that's, that's, you know, clearly, you know, either, either bringing down the rest of the team or looked at, um, you know, that they're not, they're not clearly not carrying their weight. And so, you know, they look on the leader as the, as, as, you know, being late in making a decision, uh, th then, then you've kind of gone a little bit too far. And that's, I would say nine out of 10 times I end up in that zone of it's 
pretty crystal clear to the rest of the team and I'm still trying to figure out a way to make it work. So, uh, you know, like I said, with all these things, there's a bit of balance. Um, and, you know, I'm always a little bit too late on that. Um, and maybe that's okay. Um, you know, at least people recognize that, you know, I'm not way on the other end of the curve and that, and that people don't, don't have a chance to recover from, you know, from a bad quarter or a bad year or a bad decision or whatever. Um, so um, I think it's, it's, it's recognizing a balance. Like I said, I'm a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, kind of a, kind of a manager. And, uh, um, and sometimes that's not necessarily the best way. Um, it gets a little bit too late in the process. When you've inherited a leadership team or inherited a team reporting up to you, what have you learned about assessing who to keep and who to change? Because I've been told that when in, in the subset of hiring or personnel, that is arguably the most difficult thing to do. It's one thing to build a team from scratch. It's quite another to, you know, totally clean house on a failing team. But when you need to come in and say, and, and to spot weld, if you will, winner, winner, okay performer, underperformer, what, what things are you looking for in people's performance to make those assessments on a team that you've inherited? Yeah, there's no question that building building a team from scratch, while it's while it's you know it's it has its challenges and it's hard to attract you know um, great people and good cultural fits. It's you know from a building a team standpoint, it's a, it's it's clearly a lot easier to build a uh, a a you know high performing team from scratch than it is to take on a team either that had been you know, uh, uh, mismanaged or didn't have, didn't necessarily have the right hiring mix within that team. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I've got the right answer on what's the best way to do it. I can tell you the way I've done it, which is essentially, you know, kind of immerse myself in the team and get to know the, the various players. Um, I don't, I don't make uh, changes very quickly. Um, others may say you really need to, you know, I've, I've tried to let the you know, the, the dynamics of the team kind of play out. Um, and then, you know, you know, that might be, you know, four months, it might be six months, and it might be nine months where you let the dynamics of the team play out. Um, and I think it becomes pretty clear then who's, you know, who, who, who functions well as part of that, that team that, that looking at my skill set and my, my cultural goals and, and the way that I'm looking to manage the team. Uh, so I, I think it becomes pretty clear over time who fits and who doesn't. Um, and then it ends up being a little bit of self-selection in that, you know, people that recognize, hey, I'm not sure I'm, I fit in part of this team. And either they, you know, approach me and look for another role within the organization or, or they find another, another position. I haven't, like I said, I'm not great at, at firing people. So it's not like I come in heavy handed and, and say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. It's a little bit more, you know, living it for a while. Now you may end up having a, a little bit of a slower, uh, um, you know, transition to the, the type of team that I'm looking to build. Um, but that's kind of the way I do it. Um, it may not, there may be a better way, but that's the way I do it. When it comes to running a company from your vantage point, is success more dependent on what you choose to do or what you choose not to do? 
it's it's a, it's both. Okay, I don't know if it's both equally. Um, I think I, I tend to think it more in terms of kind of decision making. You know, you you're faced with a bunch of decisions on a daily, weekly, monthly, you know, strategy basis. Um, and you know, some people in in a lot of companies and a lot of instances, people choose not to make those decisions and they just let the markets or let the issue kind of dictate uh, the direction. Um, you know, my, my view is you're better off making a decision, even if it's, you know, you know, you know, most of the time you're better off making the wrong decision than making no decision. At least if you make the wrong decision, you, you can recognize you've chosen a path, you can decide to, to choose to, to change that path. Um, but in, in a lot of instances, if you just let the, the, you know, you don't make a decision, you, you stall through a decision, you delay through, a, through an opportunity, then it's hard to recover from that. Um, and uh, so I like to think it more, a little bit more in terms of decision-making, which is you need to make decisions when those decisions are, are in front of you, um, as opposed to kicking them down the road and then letting, making no decision and letting the markets kind of force you into a, into a role maybe, or a position that you, you weren't planning on. Um, that's my, my view. Your own level of performance is certainly important in the success of your company day to day. Are there practices, habits, things you do that you you do really to help boost your performance in your job? Like some people get up at 530 in the morning, some people uh, make sure that they have uh, a well being walk in the middle of the day. Are the things that Kevin Smith has picked up that you found are really useful for maintaining the performance of you as a CEO? Um, well, I mean, I have my, you know, my, uh, uh, you know, the things that I do that, you know, that, that keeps me in kind of a, a bit of a groove on, on, on day-to-day -day activities. I do get up early in the morning. I exercise, you know, pretty much every morning. Um, and, you know, regardless of what time I, I've got a call first thing in the morning, you know, I'm, I get up, I exercise and I shower and, and, and dress business casual for the day, you know, throughout COVID, you know, we were spending a lot of time at home and, you know, I would say 99 out of a hundred days, I'm exercised, showered and ready to go. Um, when my first call starts, whether it's at seven o'clock in the morning or, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a discipline that just works for me. Um, you know, some people are great, you know, they roll out of bed 10 minutes before their first call, it's on zoom, they're, they're off camera, you know, whatever, I'd like to start my day out and, and as if I was, you know, kind of going into the office, whether I'm going into the office or not. So that's one part of the discipline for me. Um, I, I kind of use you know, exercise is a bit of a relax, you know, I'll, I'll listen to things on podcasts, or I'll, you know, uh, listen to music or whatever. Um, so that helps me in the morning to kind of, you know, uh, you know, direct me towards the rest of the day, uh, and get a bit of a re release out. So that's probably one of the things that I do. Um, you know, um, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, even if I still have work to do, which you know most days I do, I still I move out of my office. I leave office at, at a normal time. I have 
go, you know, my kids are all out and about. It's just my wife and I, I go home, I have dinner. Um, and then I'll work into the evening hours, you know, sitting on the couch with my wife watching, you know, a show or a sports event or something like that. So I, you know, at the end of the day, I leave the office and, and or if I'm in my home office, I go up to kind of the living area and then I'll work, but work more in, in kind of the social setting with, with my wife and a little bit more I get kind of a break from that, um, you know, sitting at my desk in front of my computer um, now I'll, maybe I'll have my computer on my lap on the couch, you know, watching a movie or whatever at night. But, um, so I've got certain things that, that I do that, you know, I, you know, certainly, uh, work a lot of hours, but I try and break it up a little bit with other things to make sure that I'm kind of staying focused. Kevin Smith. Thank you. We'd like to close these by just asking, are you a climate optimist or a climate pessimist and why? I'm, I would say I'm an optimist. Um, I think we have a big problem. Um, I think we've got a big problem with the climate. It's, it's pretty clear. Um, but I, you know, I believe in technology and, and innovation. And, and I think we've got the ability to solve problems. And, and I think, I think we're going we're gonna to figure out a way out of the mess we've created uh, through technology and, and through innovation. Kevin Smith, I have wanted you on this show since we conceived of it originally. You were on the original list, there's no lie, and I'm thrilled that we were able to, to get you on. So I, I'm really looking forward to producing this thing and to sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's an honor and it's a pleasure doing work for you on a routine basis. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.